All right, I invite you, if you'd like to turn to Luke 23. We're going to look at uh, what is regarded as Jesus' first saying from the cross at verse 34. We'll start reading at verse 32 and we'll read down through 38 and then really just kind of stare at verse 34. <laughs> As I was trying to bring this to a close, I realized I'm not even close to doing justice to this verse. I never am, but I really felt it in this one. But we're going we're gonna to go with this. I wish I had another three months uh, just for this one verse, but I don't. So before we read it and look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, for his work on the cross. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit has recorded this for us, that we might be edified and equipped for our good works. And as we study it, we ask that your Holy Spirit would attend our study, that Christ would be made great, that we would be encouraged and strengthened, and that any who don't know you would be saved. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, uh, Luke 23 at verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One more time, verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That will be our focus tonight. This far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives. So, beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, tonight, I want to begin with... Uh, uh, this question, why did Jesus pray for forgiveness? Why is he even uttering this first cry? Why is he praying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do? He begins with this, and I think for a very important reason. And I want to put this prayer in context, because remember, we are uh, at this point in Jesus' ministry transitioning to the new covenant, but not yet there. That veil is still up. Everybody in front of Jesus, including Jesus himself, is duty-bound to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law. The Mosaic Covenant is still in full force. And if we know how God operates in the Old Covenant, as I'm going to walk us through here in a minute, we will see why Jesus utters this prayer. Right before the flood, we're told this about the hearts of men. Kind of, we're going to kind of walk through the Bible here a little bit. Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that is, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And what did the Lord do to display his justice against the, against the wickedness of men's hearts? He sent the flood. Eight people made it through. Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. The cities were filled with great sin. Some angels of the Lord went down, uh, went to stay with Lot. The men of the house are banging on the door. Give us those men that we can know them. The sin of homosexuality. And what did the Lord do to display his justice against the sin of adultery there in Sodom and Gomorrah? He rained down sulfur and fire from heaven on the city. In Exodus, the Egyptians got a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And he oppressed the Israelites, made them not just slaves, but it was hard work to be a slave under this Pharaoh. You got to make your bricks, but you got to gather your own straw. Long days. He wouldn't let them go. God said, you will let my people go. 
Israel's my firstborn son. They're going to go worship and they're going to go serve me. You will let them go. He wouldn't. And what did God do? Ten plagues. And on the tenth, the first nine, just destroying Egypt. <laughs> Pharaoh's magicians telling him and wise men, don't you realize that our country's a wreck now? And then on the tenth one, killing firstborn. Korah's rebellion, number 16. Korah, Dathan, Abiram. They rose up against Moses and Aaron, challenging their authority. Who do you guys think you are? God hasn't really set you apart. We can do this work as well, along with others. And what did God do? Number 16, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. 250 men were consumed with fire from the Lord. The bronze serpent, Numbers 21, the Israelites became impatient. They grumbled against God. Did you take us out here? To die, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They didn't like the cuisine. What did the Lord do to display his justice against their sin of discontentment and their impatience? Fiery serpents, many of them died. Achan's stealing from Jericho, Joshua 7. God said that everything and everyone in Jericho except Rahab and the people with her were to be destroyed, devoted to destruction, harem. Achan kept for himself a cloak, a bar of gold, and 200 shekels of silver. And what did God do to Achan and his family? Had his entire family and Achan stoned. David's census, 2 Samuel 24, near the end of David's life, this was a sin of pride. How great is Israel? How great is Judah? David took the census. Eventually, God struck down 70,000 men. Sennacherib's boast in his army, 2 Kings 18 to 19. Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. He threatened to take down Judah and Jerusalem during the reign of Hezekiah. He sent a messenger to God, uh, to mock God, telling Israel not to put their trust in Egypt and especially not in their God. And what did the Lord do? In one night, he sent the angel down and killed 185,000 military men in Sennacherib's army. And in the morning, they were just dead in the fields. If you ingest all of this data and you see how seriously God takes sin, and what even a partial administration of his justice looks like, what do we think might take place when his own people to whom he sent his son put his only begotten son whom he loves dearly on the cross to crucify him with the charge of blasphemy that didn't even stick? It doesn't take much of an imagination to figure out what is about to happen, what could happen, <laughs> what the father in his justice may do to all these people standing in front of the son he loves. Make them pay. And what does Jesus do? Almost as one writer put, I think it was J.C. Ryle or A.W. Pink, as they're lifting him up, as he's beginning his work as high priest, the first thing out of his mouth is, Father, forgive them. It's the first thing Jesus says, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. So Jesus is making sure that justice is not administered to the people in front of them. The second thing he's doing is acting as high priest. Now, what's interesting in Jesus' ministry, in this prayer, he prays, Father, forgive them. But if you look at the ministry of Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, there's something interesting that normally happens. Matthew 9, 2, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus forgives sins. Mark 2, 5, son, your sins are forgiven. Luke 5, 20, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. 
Luke 7, 47, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And people pick this notion up. Luke 5, 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They, they caught what Jesus was doing. Luke 7, 49, those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? So Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, is forgiving sins like he's God. But on the cross, instead of saying, I forgive you, he says, Father, forgive them. What's going on? He is acting as our high priest. He is taking us and our problems to God, acting as our perfect high priest on the cross. This is also a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors, so between the two thieves, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is here making intercession. He's pleading for those who are sinning against God. The high priest on the day of atonement always needed blood in order to atone for the sins of his people. And here Jesus is asking God the Father to forgive people, but he's making this petition without an animal sacrifice, without any animal sacrifice having been made. It's a bold petition. On what basis do you make it, Jesus? How do you come as high priest? Where's the animal sacrifice? Now, how is forgiveness even possible? That's the second thing I want us to notice. How is forgiveness even possible? Father, forgive them. The word ephiemi is just let go. Sometimes uh, the language of forgiveness in the New Testament is a charizomite has to do with gracing, give them grace. Here it's ephiemi, which has to do with let them go. And the question is, how can God forgive them for their sin? How can he just let them go? That a grievous sin has been committed already is evident. The Son of God has been treated unjustly. He's being charged as a blasphemer. The Son of God is being crucified and mocked as a king. How can God forgive? And Bishop uh, Westcott wrote, nothing superficially seems simpler than forgiveness. Of course God can forgive. But nothing, if we look deeply, is more mysterious and difficult. Yeah, forgiveness is easy until you start looking at it. Actually, how, how can God forgive? How can he just let go of this? How can God the Father honor Christ's request? to let these people go. Because our God is a God, Exodus 34, 7, who will by no means clear the guilty. God will punish all wrongdoing. If God will not clear the guilty, then how can God forgive? And the answer lies in what Jesus is doing on the cross. Jesus' prayer is a double-edged sword. Father, let them go. On the one hand, that's his prayer for his enemies, that God's immediate wrath would not fall upon them. They don't know what they're doing. They'll eventually learn what they're doing through apostolic preaching. More on that in just a moment. But he's praying, let them go. So Jesus' prayer is answered there. But on the other hand, if Jesus prays that prayer, it means he's putting himself on the hook for their sins. Father, if you let them go, Father, let them go. But condemn me. Father, if you let them go and answer this prayer, that means there's no one left to pay for their sins except me. And it will be just moments later when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You don't hear anyone else crying that out at the cross. Jesus is the only one crying that, that out at the cross, which tells you he understands exactly what's going on. Father, forgive them. Let them go. Let their sins be on me. Release them. I'm in prison for them. I'm standing in their place. Pour your wrath down heavy upon me, not upon them. Let them go. Give them time. 
release them. Now, this may come, I think it probably is just a reminder to most of us regarding forgiveness. Forgiveness is difficult because it requires a cost. So, uh, for example, if you loan me your brand new car, and let's just say that car costs $40,000, <laughs> I think it's probably hard to buy a new car for 40,000 bucks today. But whatever the case may be, you buy a brand new car off the lot, pride and joy, awesome car. I loan it and I go on a joy ride and I totally wreck it. I run it off a cliff. There's no insurance for a friend joyriding in your car and running it off a cliff. And so now you are on the hook for the loss of your car. Actually, I'm on the hook if there's no insurance. I've got to somehow pay that back. You have two options on what to do with this. You can either require me to be on the hook, which is fair. Zach, you have to pay for the car. You joy rode in it. You abuse the privilege. You did not handle this well. Your fault. You pay the car, you go buy me a new one, and we're square. That would be totally fair. The second, if in that situation, I would incur the debt. I'm now paying for it, rightly so. Nothing unjust about that at all. There's another option, though, where you can say, I forgive you. <laughs> now, what does that mean for me? I'm forgiven and I get to go free. What does that mean for you? You're out of $40,000 car. You incur the debt. It costs you. Forgiveness is expensive, beloved. When we say, I forgive you to somebody, when someone says, I forgive you to us, someone, the one offering forgiveness is saying, all the hurt and the pain and the physical elements to this, if I was something was stolen from me, whatever was lost, I'm saying, I will not make you pay for it anymore. I will release you from that debt and I'll incur the debt myself. That's what forgiveness is. It's the incurring of debt. Forgiveness isn't the removal of debt. It's the transfer of debt from us to Christ. It's the transfer of debt from the one who offended to the one who was offended. And they say, look, I'm going to take the debt off you. I'll incur it. You're free to go. It's the transfer of debt from us to Christ. The debt must be paid. No debt will go unpaid. The debt is just transferred from us to Jesus. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, he's now on the hook for our debt. If we're forgiven, Jesus is on the hook to be condemned and condemned he was. How is forgiveness possible? It's possible if Jesus is condemned in our place, if he takes the punishment. Now, who is Jesus asking to be forgiven? Father, forgive them. Who are the them? Now, whoever the people are whom Jesus is asking forgiveness for must be some pretty remarkable people, or so we might be tempted to think until you look at who is standing around him when he utters this cry, and it is remarkable. First, there's soldiers there. These men dressed Jesus up in purple. They mocked him as a king. They spit on him, slapped him in the face, flogged him, eventually scourged him. They derided him. They began to salute him, Mark 15, 18, Hail, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. Luke 23, 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. They divided up his garments. They pounded the spikes into his hands and into his feet. They didn't just kill him, they tortured him. That's what crucifixion was. They were torturing Jesus as much as they possibly could. And Spurgeon writes this about Jesus' prayer that they would have heard as they were in the midst of this. The men that drove the nails, the men that lifted up the tree must have 
started back with amazement when they heard Jesus talk to God as his father and pray for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Did ever a Roman legionary hear such words before? I should say not. They were so distinctly and diametrically opposed to the whole spirit of Rome. There it was blow for blow. Only in the case of Jesus, they gave blows where none had been received. The crushing cruelty of the Romans must have been startled indeed at such words as these. Father, forgive them. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is doing just that right here. This is unbelievable. Loving his enemies, praying for those who are taking his life. Then there's the Jewish leaders around him, Matthew 27, 41. Also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Jesus could be resurrected. Mark 15, he saved others. He can't save himself. Luke 23, 35, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one, that was what the Jewish leaders were saying about Jesus. These wicked, evil, hateful blasphemers who conspired against Jesus to get him on the cross. Christ is saying to his father, Father, forgive them because they have no idea what they are doing. Then we have the robbers more on that on Friday with the one who was saved. Matthew 27, 44, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way, the robbers, plural. And then the crowds. In Pilate's court, remember the crowds being stirred up by the chief priests were yelling what? Crucify him, crucify him. That was the cry of the crowds. And Matthew 27, verse 39 says, those who passed by, just the general populace derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. These are the them that Jesus prays for. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's amazing work from a perfect high priest with incredible compassion and sympathy in the midst of his agonizing pain and going through God's wrath. Now, what was the effect of this prayer? Matthew 27, 54, we have soldier conversions. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. We have Jewish conversions from the apostles preaching when the apostles went around and said the unthinkable. They told the Jews exactly what they did. Acts 2.23, you crucified and killed Jesus. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel know that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. Acts 7.52, Stephen's sermon, you betrayed and murdered the righteous one. Acts 3.17, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. And we're told in Acts 6.7, many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In one sense, what Jesus was buying everyone in front of the cross was this, time. Father, withhold your wrath now. Give them time. Let the apostles announce to them what they've done, that they might repent. Let them go because they don't know what they're doing. 
One day they will discover what they're doing. Many of them will. Some of them won't. Some people heard the message like with Stephen and they reject it. They're called stiff-necked and hard-hearted and they just stone Stephen. But many who were there to crucify Jesus with blood all over their hands heard the message about what they did and their hearts hit the dust because God gave them a new heart and they believed and they were, they were saved. J.C. Ryle, perhaps this prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, was the first step towards the penitent thief's repentance, the, the one on the cross. Perhaps it was one means of affecting the centurion who declared our Lord a righteous man and the people who smote their breasts and returned. Perhaps the 3,000 converted on the day of Pentecost, foremost, it may be at one time among our Lord's murderers, owed their conversion to this very prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when they find out what they're doing, indeed, they come to faith. Now, what about us? We might see this as a distant event in a galaxy far, far away. But this actually hits quite close to home. We have a great need to be forgiven because we have sinned against God as well. Physically, literally, we were not standing there crucifying Jesus, and yet figuratively we were. Because we by nature are the God-haters. We by nature are just the same as the scribes and the Pharisees and the crowds and the soldiers. We just weren't alive 2,000 years ago. We're alive here in 2023, and we need to be forgiven. We need a high priest to pray on our behalf that God the Father would forgive us, that we would get new hearts and come to faith rather than face his wrath for our sin. John Stott wrote this to sort of update the message. We too sacrifice Jesus to our greed like Judas, to our envy like the priests, to our ambition like Pilate. Were you there when they crucified my Lord, the old spiritual asks? And we must answer, yes, we were there not as spectators only, but as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, and handing him over to be crucified, or to use the language of Horatius Bonar in a hymn, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood, I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God, I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one, and in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferer's groan, yet still my voice it seems to be as if I mocked alone. So we need this forgiveness. We need a high priest who will stand between us and the righteous wrath of God for our sins and who will call it off. Father, forgive them and who will put himself on the spot. Let me paraphrase this prayer. Father, forgive them, condemn me. Let them go, I'm on the hook. Let them be free from the, the, the debt they owe you. I'll make the payment. And that's exactly what Jesus was in the midst of doing, making payment. Now I realize that in our natural pride, this is hard to take, that it's difficult for us as humans, even as born-again Christians sometimes, to take this. Don't tell me I'm that bad, that I have to have someone make payment for me. Surely I can somehow 
make payment. And for sure, that is the attitude of an unbelieving heart. I can make payment. I can make up for this. And John Stott on that comments, we insist on paying for what we have done. We can't stand the humiliation of acknowledging our bankruptcy and allowing somebody else to pay for us. The notion that there's somebody else should be God himself is just too much to take. We would rather perish than repent, rather lose ourselves than humble ourselves. It's hard to come to God and say to him, I have nothing to bring. I cling to the cross. I bring sin. I bring debt. I bring guilt. I bring trespass. I bring everything wrong that, that is wrong in the world. I bring that with me in my heart and my life. I need you to forgive. I need you to let me go. I need you to put someone else on the hook. Thank you for putting Christ there. Now, just in closing, what will this look like for us as believers who've received this verdict that our sins are forgiven? What sort of effect will it have on our life? It will change the way we think. We will not let ourselves think long, or at least when we do, we will know we're in sin that our God is requiring of us payment for our sins. No, Jesus paid for it. He said, Father, let them go. He was condemned in our place. We can't think in our life when suffering hits. We cannot think that God is coming against us like a judge after a criminal or a police officer after someone who skipped bail. We cannot think like that. That's not how our God treats us. It's tempting a lot of times, but it's inaccurate. Our sins are forgiven. Jesus paid for them. Our relationship now with God is one of a child to a father. If God is bringing difficulty into our life, it's because he loves us. It's because he's a tender father and he knows we need it. As hard as that might be to swallow. But he's for us. He's not against us. He's a perfect father. It has to change our obedience. It has to change just how we live, beloved. I'm guessing if we had, let's say we have a, I'm just trying to think on the fly here. We have a massive restaurant bill, a $500 bill. We're on the hook for it. Went way higher than we thought. And somebody walks in and says, I'm going to pick up their tab. How would we leave that restaurant? Well, I guarantee we'd go up and say thank you to that person. Now let somebody say somebody comes in, they pay off our mortgage. Wow, you paid off my mortgage. I have no more debt. What would our relationship to that person be? How would we treat them? Thankfulness. What happens if somebody came in and paid a debt we can't pay? I'm not talking a few hundred thousand bucks or a few million bucks or a billion dollars. We're talking a debt, spiritual debt that just can't be paid. What is the only fitting response to that? <laughs> wow. Yes. <laughs> For the rest of our life. So beloved, our sins have been forgiven. Our debt really has been paid. We owe God nothing but praise and thanks and obedience from the heart of a joyful servant. That's really what our lives are about until the day that we die. Let's pray.